Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms, legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Welcome, everyone, to uh, yet another uh, edition of Bill Roden on Sports. Uh, I'm Bill Roden, of course, and here to my right is the great Jamal Murphy. Glad to be here, of course. We're recording then, uh, uh, you know, we're recording in Harlem, USA today from the wonderful uptown studios of Harlem in Harlem, USA. My office, I, I don't think I should really tell people that. Like, I don't tell people that. <laughs> if I tell them, I had to kill them. You know? just, just let them know this is my office at, uh, up in Harlem, USA. And my guest today, once again making his second appearance on Bill Roden on Sports, is the great Gary Matthews Jr. Gary. Yes, sir. Yeah, great having you on hey, the East Coast, man. So, so good to be in Harlem, uh, getting out of Orange County, getting out of Newport Beach. Corona Del Mar area to to come up to uh, Harlem. I, I love it out here. We can change places, though, man. As we get as, as we get ready to get that chill, <laughs> you can, right? You know, right. That's I mean that's that's the only thing to make. I mean New York, I feel is is basically the, the greatest city on earth. Yeah. In fact, I was telling my daughter, she moved to Chicago out of college. I said, she, I said, listen, don't compare any place you live. In other words, have. Compare all the other cities play against themselves. Paris, London, Chicago, and all that. New York is kind of out by itself. Don't mm-hmm. just go wherever you go, have fun, but don't compare it to this place because you'll always be miserable. Right. You know, I, growing up in LA, like you have so much pride. Everyone has pride in, in where they grow up, but. Yo, L.A. for me was like the essence of of cool. You know, yeah. you got Hollywood, you got sports, Showtime Lakers, uh, the Dodgers. You know, during the '80s, I mean, they had some some great teams. You know, I'd never say that around my father, but but it's the <laughs> That's truth. Right. But there's something about Harlem, uh, New York, uh, which is the epitome and like the origination of of cool. What's cool? Uh, what you wear, what you listen to, you know, where you eat, you know, there's a certain authenticity to Harlem that, that I love. And uh, that's become more evident now that I'm retired and, and able to come here and enjoy New York uh, outside of, of baseball. I've just immersed myself in, in other things, whether it's uh, the museums, the, mm. the art, you know, the architecture. I just, I, I love Harlem. I love New York. Yeah, well, you know, so you're going to be spending more time. Just for people who didn't listen to the first of our broadcast uh, with Gary and May, who do like Autobot, you know, uh, Gary, uh, major, former Major League Baseball player, you're going to have to fill in the blanks. I have my cheat yeah. sheet. <laughs> so his, his father is Gary Matthews Sr. My the father Sarge. is Gary Matthews Sr., the Sarge. My father played for the San Francisco Giants, the Atlanta Braves, Philadelphia Phillies, where he lost in the 83 World Series, went on to the Chicago Cubs, and he's most known for having played for the Cubs and the Phillies. He played on two really good teams uh, in Philadelphia and Chicago. One in 83, they lost the series. 84, they had a, one of the better Chicago Cub teams ever. Uh, they won the first two games and were one game away from the World Series and ended up losing three straight mm. to Steve Garvey and the San Diego Padres. 
and uh, and the rest is is history. But uh, the fans still remember that team. And then, you know, I came along some some years later and uh, also played for the Cubs for two seasons and uh, bounced around, went to Baltimore. I played here in New York for the Mets for a little bit. And, and then when I finally figured it all out, <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of stuck in Texas and with the L.A. Angels and uh, made an all-star team in between in 2006 and you know became one of the few father-son duos to uh, be all-stars in, in their careers, respectively. And won uh, three straight division titles in the American wow. League West, and and we couldn't couldn't get to the promised land. We we got beat twice by the Boston Red Sox. Big Poppy and Manny mm-hmm. Ramirez at the time were just unstoppable. Now we know they were on drugs, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then uh, and then you have uh, in two thousand nine, CC Sabathia, Derek Jeter, and and that's when you know we couldn't stop a Rod. A Rod was just had an unbelievable postseason, and uh, the Yankees beat us, and they won a championship for the first time in a while. And uh, so we fell short. I, I never got that that elusive World Series ring, but uh, obviously a, a lot of memories and, and a long career and, and a history with uh, with my father in the game. Hmm. What, what's the lightning out? Was there a year where you guys played simultaneously? There was never a year. I played – my father finished up his career in 88 – 87, I think, was his last year. He retired that next year. I ended up playing from – I signed in 94 and officially retired in 2011. So uh, pretty. both of us had pretty long careers, but we never overlapped. I had the pleasure of, of being coached by my father, uh, which wasn't exactly enjoyable. <laughs> but, but, but now that I look back – and uh, I'm done playing. My father's still in the game. He's an ambassador, uh, if you will, with the Philadelphia's kisses babies and, right. you know, sweet uh, season ticket holders. And, you know, the fans love him out there. And um, I'm able to appreciate those times. Uh, and I appreciated them then. But, you know, once you get removed from them a little bit, you, you really acknowledge how special those times where not everyone gets to follow in their foot their father's footsteps literally and and do fairly well and have a a, a good career uh it's not something that everyone gets an opportunity to do and it wasn't lost on me then and i i appreciate it even more now let me let me ask you something we and this we were talking about children your son Mm -hmm. and i was thinking of when we were talking about our children and just you know how we got it. Just the whole process of getting them to Jordan. You know, crossing sure. Jordan. Sure. You know? Yeah. And and I was thinking now you followed your dad's footsteps. You know, my sense is that, you know, your dad. You know, grew up how he grew up. Uh, you were didn't have it as tough as he did because he was a pro ball. But I'm thinking now of our kids' generation. Oh. Born not only with one silver spoon, oh. but one with. 15. So I'm thinking, without going to a lot of detail, because I don't want to sure. embarrass your son, but <laughs> right, you know, right. It just, just right. It, it just must be very difficult to know that you know. Well, I'm going to go to any college I want. I'm going. In other words, you, I don't really have to work for kind of anything because right. everything is right. just kind of here. That must be very difficult. You know, I I have this conversation with friends. You know, we're we're in our early 40s. I'm 41 right now. Jamal, I don't know how old you are, but... 39. 
39, okay? So we're, we're right around I'll the same age. talking about my age. And, and, Bill, we won't ask you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing as a parent to guide your, your children, right, and get them ready to go out in this world and be productive citizens and, and uh, goal-oriented, you know, citizens who, uh, who just – want to do good things you know but it's a difficult thing because they will never have it I'll never have it like my father had it my son will never had it like I had it and so what is the happy medium between my father's upbringing which was with a single mother his father passed away when he was five years old my father grew up without nothing you know he grew up with absolutely nothing just his mother who was a hard-working mother taking care of three children uh, I came along my parents uh, met, you know, in the uh, in the hood, so to speak. My grandfather owned commercial real estate in Pacoima, which is where my father grew up. And my mother, uh, when she wasn't in college, used to work at my father's shopping, uh, my grandfather's shopping center. That's how my parents met. So they met in the hood, and you know, my mom married the uh, proverbial. You know, guy from the wrong side of the tracks and, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Things work out. And my I used to spend my summers working at my grandfather's shopping center, sweeping the lots in the hood. And so I even though we grew up uh, an upper middle class family, I still had my feet and had a diverse upbringing, if you will. You know, so I would spend a little bit of time in the hood during the summers. I go to church on Sundays with my grandmother at Calvary Baptist in Pacoima, uh, where my father grew up. And so I had a, a really diverse upbringing and, uh, and really thankful for that, that I could interact with, with people from, you know, Watts in South Central to Pacoima in the hood where my grandfather grew up. And, and literally the next week, we might be having dinner with Mayor Daly or the Cardinal in Chicago, you know, and, and how do I give my son that upbringing? And it's difficult because my son is growing up in Corona Del Mar out by the beach. And, uh, you know, my son is an extremely humble kid, uh, sweet kid, but like any other 17 year old who's growing up today in 2015, they are, uh, you know, they're a little soft. They, they don't necessarily uh, like failure. They want success to come easy and they want it to come swiftly. And, and that's not realistic. You know, as, as a parent, I think the best I can do for him is I just try and give him a, as diverse an upbringing as I possibly can. And, you know, things like that involve, you know, church with the family, plenty of time with his grandparents, people who can speak to him about what things were. And, and right now, he's been on his uh, he's been on his Malcolm X kick. He, he's reading the Malcolm X autobiography and kind of getting that's good. that yeah, that, that diverse yeah, background. Like that. You know, what that'll do is piss you off, <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's that, that's uh, you know, there are certain people. My parent, our parents live this, right? right? My son's reading about it, right? While while Instagramming and being on Twitter and all these things, you know. So as a parent, I, I try and you know get him to focus on his education and try and limit the, the tweeting and Instagramming and, and all those things, you know, and, and you can't stop all of it, right? But, but think about but, this, Gary. If, 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 if Dr. King and Malcolm 
knew about Instagram and Twitter <laughs> in terms of mobilizing people. Right. Let, let's 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 assume the the, the the highest ideal of these social media, which right. is to blast a lot of people instantly. I mean, if the million man, I mean the the march on Washington would probably have like trillions of people. You know, if Dr. King could Instagram, if he could, or if he could tweet, you know, stuff like that. You know, so so the, the positive part is good. What we're talking about is what's the what's the higher use of this ability right. to, to to communicate globally instantly, as opposed to doing whatever. Right. You know. it, it's kind of evolving in front of our eyes, right? And Jamal, you were you were about to, to speak uh, I mean, on and it. And remember, I mean, he's a kid, so he's trying. To, he's just trying to figure things out. Um, he can't really control his environment, you know. So he's figuring it out within his his current environment. And to me, you know, I you know I was all over the place when I was younger. I wasn't as focused as my younger sister was, who always did the right things and went to the best schools and all that kind of stuff, got the best grades. But I feel like when you come from the right background, you know, you're gonna get it eventually, and you're gonna get it in time. So I, you know, I, yeah, I, right. I, I wouldn't worry too yeah. much. I think he'll be yeah. okay. I try not to. W- to worry too much about it but you know as as a parent we're always concerned about our our children's future and uh you know you you try and figure it out how do i get them focused sooner than later and you know my my grandmother my my father's mother used to say a a hard head will make a what oh yeah soft a soft ass right that's right that's true true. (laughs) right Uh, let, let, let me um I, I, there's so much to talk about, man. But let's talk about baseball for you know for for a second. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know because um, you played in the playoffs. I mean, you played. You just talked about how not only did you play in the playoffs, but you almost got to the promised land. What's it like? And and they always talk about in the NBA and the NFL. Well, there's a regular season, and then there's the playoff intensity. And I know that you could feel that, let's say, in the NBA uh, or the NFL, where in those games you hit harder, go harder. Baseball is not quite like that, where you where you hit harder, I mean, mm-hmm. you know. But what's it like, and what was it like for you playing in the playoffs? Yeah, you know, baseball. You're right. It's not a sport where you can run faster, hit harder, and get better results. Baseball doesn't work like that. It, it really is a a sport that requires you being precise fundamentally and keeping the emotions in check. And when the playoffs start, you're right. There are, there's the regular season, and then there's the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And the best way that I can describe it is, you know, having grown up in this game, I had the full weight of knowing what this game was all about. And it, at the end of the day, it's about winning a World Series. And my father used to tell me, he's like, Junior, he's like, if you want to be remembered forever – you got to win a championship. (laughs) There's no amount of money or fame. None of that means anything. You know, you can have a great career and do some special things in that career. And, and that's great. But he said, if you want to be remembered forever, you got to win a championship. And he wasn't lying. And so when I see the playoffs going on right now, you know, I watch opening day, you know, maybe a handful of games in between. I've always loved the Midsummer Classic, right? The All-Star Game, better known as the All-Star Game, and in the playoffs. And so when I see the playoffs going on right now, 
and I see the teams that are involved, uh, the New York Mets, the Chicago Cubs, you know, just any true baseball fan, that automatically gets them really interested. Yeah, Toronto, Kansas City, you know, it speaks to the parity in the game right now. And uh, But you throw in two teams with a, a long history within the game and the, with the Cubs and the Mets, and, you know, it's exciting. It's such a great time of year. And, and I think for me, as I got older and was playing in the playoffs in 2007, 2008, and 2009, uh, honestly, and, and a lot of players won't admit to this, but for me, the pressure was building every year because I knew I was – at some point running out of time, I wouldn't have this opportunity. And so I, you know, seven, eight, and nine, you know, 2007, my first year in playoffs, it's your first time you're excited and and the energy and uh, the fact that we won our division, which is what we set out to do. And that is the first short-term goal. This is with the LA angels, Los Angeles angels of Anaheim as they're, as they're known now, they used to be called the California angels, but now, you know, for marketing reasons, you know, which was very smart on, uh, on our owner's part, uh, Artie Moreno. But, uh, 2007 was my first year there. We won the division, went to playoffs and we lost to Boston. And in the second year I noticed it kind of hit me. Okay. We've, we've won our division again. We got to get through the, the big bad monster in, in Boston. And I noticed the pressure starting to build and so I can somewhat sympathize with uh, some of the veteran players who have had some postseason struggles during their career because they, they won't admit it on camera, right? right. And, they, and, and no one wants to talk about the big elephant in the room, but what you're running out of is opportunity and time. Every year that you go to playoffs and you don't get that championship. And so uh, uh, one of the things I love about the playoffs is the stories within the game, you know, the the veteran player who's never won the World Series, who's trying to get his first title, the young players like uh, Kansas City, who are so young, but such a good team early in their careers that they don't recognize how special these opportunities are and that they, you know, for all intents and purposes, maybe shouldn't be in this position. You know, people didn't expect them to get there so soon, but they're that good. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've learned to love the stories within the playoffs, the stories within the story. What, what, what changes on the field? Is it just a higher level of focus? Um, obviously, you're playing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Mets Cubs series and people are complaining about, you know, David Wright not hitting. But then I'm looking at it and he's, he's facing Granky Kershaw, then Granky Kershaw again and Lester. So, you know, it's like you're, you're facing, I mean, the focus will go up, but also you're facing a higher level of competition. Sure. Definitely from pitch. Sure. Well, I think what the casual fan doesn't know is that before playoffs even start, they are scouts sitting in the stands. He's called an advanced scout and he charts every pitch David Wright sees Every count, he gets a fastball, curveball. They scout everything about him, right? And when they sit down with the team at the end of the season before playoffs start or before any series starts, even when a series starts over, they advance to the next round, that advanced scout sends a report to the team. The team sits down and they say, okay, who, who on this team can we not allow to beat us in these playoffs? If you are going to go home, 
What hitter in the Mets lineup are you not going to allow to beat you? There's always someone that they are going to challenge and say, okay, we're going to pitch to this guy. But this guy over here, he is not going to beat us. And so when you look at the series and, and the playoffs in general, and I'm going I'm to pose this question to, to you two, who would you not allow to beat you on that Mets team? Jamal, you're the, you're, you're the, the Mets fan. Well, yeah, I mean, fan. David Wright is one of those guys. And Absolutely. Cespedes, obviously, Cespedes. As, absolutely. But, 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 now, but, but my first thing would be Daniel Murphy. So he's, he's come out and of that, the blue and that now. is what I what I just said. There is always there's always someone that you are not going to allow to beat you. There's always someone who just can't be stopped that you can't deal with. That's Suspetus, right? And there's someone that you are going to challenge and say, you know what, you're going to have to beat us right now. And, and give Murphy credit. He's going out. He's the guy who's been challenged and said, okay, we're going to pick someone that we're going to pitch to. Mm-hmm. And if you beat us, hey, okay. But there's someone who's not going to beat us. That's David Wright. They're going to pitch around him, pitch him tough, do whatever they got to do. And there's someone that can't be stopped right now. That's probably Cespedes, right? They're like, he's going to get his and we can't stop it. Like, like LeBron James in the playoffs, right? He's getting his. But there's someone they're going to challenge and say, you're going to have to knock down that that twenty fit jumper on us, and we're gonna see if you can hit it. And Daniel Murphy is that guy right now. He's lights out, and, and give him credit because he's also hit some really difficult pitches, right? And, and pitches that you wouldn't expect him to hit, and he's hit some starting pitchers in this series. And he took Kershaw deep twice, right. so like tip your cap. And maybe in this next series, maybe it flip flops, and he should be the guy that you don't allow to beat you. But uh, you know. But these are the stories about the playoffs. These are the stories within the stories that I love about playoffs. And one, one thing I noticed, too, about the playoffs is, you know, during the regular season, baseball is kind of looked at as a as an individual sport. You always look at the numbers. And I feel like you can't really do that in the playoffs. Um, it's condensed, and it's more. it becomes more of a team game. So, mm-hmm. you know, David Wright might not be hitting. Someone else steps up, mm-hmm. and you value that more. And maybe, you know, David Wright shouldn't, you know, be burdened to the extent – that he is, where you know it's no longer just a numbers game like it is in the regular season. So you shouldn't no. look at players; you should look at the team. No, it becomes more so of a team game during the playoffs. Uh, you see a lot of unselfish play. Uh, you'll see situations with no outs and a man on second base, and instead of trying to get the RBI, you might see a guy bunt to the right side. You might see him pull a weak ground ball on the outer half of the plate because he wants to advance that run to third base with less than two outs. You know, that's the type of selfish, unselfish plays that win championships during the postseason. And so all your individual numbers go out of the, go out of the, uh, you know, go out of the scenario for, for players anyway, and management, the manager, Coaches, they're going to analyze the numbers and look at what relievers are hot, look at what hitters are hot, and and they might shuffle the lineup and the bullpen accordingly. But the players, all the numbers go out the windows, and it's all about winning baseball games. Whatever is going to get us one more run than the other team at the end of this game, that's what we're willing to do during the uh, during the postseason. Which team has? Uh, obviously, we're in New York. So the Mets, you know, <laughs> right. Harlem, USA. Although we're right down the street, as you know, from Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. uh, dark Yankee Stadium, by yeah. the way. Cause, but what team has impressed you? What, if, let's start with the Mets. What do you think about the Mets? I mean, they—you were talking about um, veterans. They've got these three relative young kids. I mean, two yeah. bona fide young kids, 
uh, in DeGrom and Syndergaard. Then they've got Matt Harvey, who we could talk about behavior <laughs> later. But right. what do you think? What do you think of the mess? Right. Again, this is a team you played for. Sure, an, an organization that I, I played for uh, briefly uh, once in 2002, and again in 2010. So separated by you know eight or nine years. I was here briefly, but what I remember is just a, a storied organization that was uh, has the pressure of of the city of New York. You know, you've got the the other guys across town who have won all these championships, and and they are the organization and New York baseball team that that's adored and revered and. And then you have the Mets, right? People would consider the the lowly Mets, but from what I remember, a really class organization, uh, you know, ownership that that truly loved the team and and loved the history associated with the team. And so when I look at them in the playoffs right now, I'm actually really happy for them. You know, happy for David Wright and the opportunity that he has. You know, uh, you know. I'm a player who never got a chance to play in a World Series. And so when I look at a team or an organization that I have a relationship with and that I played for, man, I'm, I'm happy that they have the opportunity. And you look at, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is, are these three young pitchers that you just talked about. Uh, they are up two games to zero on the Cubs. And look, Arietta. And Lester, you know, those are two starting pitchers for the Cubs. They got to get at least one of those games, right? right? And they didn't. And here they are down, you know, 0-2. And, and it's, you know, it's looking good for the Mets. So I think they are they're primed to be in a really good position to, to go the series. Now, they still got to pull these games out. But, you know, their pitching is set up great. Bartolo Colon hasn't even pitched yet. Right. Okay. Right. And and they're going to have to face Colon, who's who's had just an an unbelievable resurgence in his career. And and when I look at uh, Colon pitching, you know the movement is still there, the location is still there, and you know I think if you told the Mets, hey, we're going to be up two nothing on them in the NLCS. Yeah, I think, and and Bar- Bartolo Colon hasn't pitched. I mean, they they or De- Degrom hasn't pitched. or Degrom hasn't pitched. I mean, that's they're in a great position. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. Uh, what do you think about um, uh, the opponent? We talked a little bit about the Cubs. Is there a team that impresses you? We haven't talked that much about Kansas City. We haven't touched about, uh, talked that much about Toronto. Right. Uh, what about uh, what about those those who are all of our Midwest listeners? I'm in. I'm impressed. Yeah. For for uh, we got to give some Midwest love, right? Yeah, During the yeah, playoffs, yeah. I, I really like Kansas City. When I look at how this team plays defensively and how this team pitches, this is truly a team that is built for the postseason. You have to be able to pitch and play defense to win the close games. And those are the things that they do well. They play so well fundamentally, which is rare for a young team, and they pitch well. And, you know, you can find some pitching, right? 
but they're not signing any big free agents, right? No one thinks about Kansas City as a huge free agent destination. So when you consider where the Kansas City Royals are at this stage in these young players' career, it speaks to the strength of the scouting department. It speaks to the strength of their coaches who have developed these players. So overall, just that organization's got to be in a really good place right now to have these young players uh, in the playoffs and on the brink of a World Series. Will that be two years in a row? They've been there, and so this is. Uh, I think that should be a huge story, also. Right. I mean, they're they're far from a fluke, like you said. This is the second. They were in the World Series last year. They ran away with a division this year. You know, a division that included Detroit, who was everybody's favorite going right. in. Right. They're the they're the team that spent the money. Right. And like you said, for Kansas City to get it done like this, I mean, they deserve a lot of credit. And if whoever comes out of the National League, I would be worried about Kansas City. You know, I said that last year, right? I mean, I thought there's no. I thought Kansas City was a fluke. I I thought they were talented. I thought they played defense really well. But I thought the the pressure of playing on the big stage would would get to them. But here they are back two years in a row. And you got to give credit where credit is due. I don't care what you say. I mean, they don't have this one superstar player. Uh, and and a player that you would think is just going to take them to the next level. But they play so well collectively. They play so unselfishly, and and they play fundamental baseball, which enables them to play well under pressure and it enables them to play well in close games. I, I, how tough, I was just thinking right here and you talk. Have you talked to Barry Bonds lately? The last time I haven't. Talking, he, was, he used to be your babysitter. Yeah, <laughs> Barry was Barry was my babysitter. Like you know, a lot of people don't know this, and Barry was had to be in high school when I was maybe five or something like that. But I remember him just being a really you know quiet kid, but crazy talented. But I haven't spoken with Barry. It's been a been a long time. But I heard he's doing a lot of cycling these days, and he's moved back to San Francisco and and uh, you know. A lot of people don't know this, but Barry Bonds does so much charity work under the radar. Like he's never been the guy to to call the cameras in or call his publicist and make sure that he's getting credit uh, for for doing some of these things. But he is a guy who's done so much work uh, with the children's hospitals uh, in the Bay Area and under under the radar. And so, uh, you know, that's something I've always respected about him. And look. To me, in my opinion, he's one of the, the best players to ever suit up. Oh, and, and uh, you know, but should have been a first ballot. Should have been Hall a first ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> and you know, whether he gets in and what they do with with the the quote unquote steroid era, I don't. Who knows what they do with it? But he's one of the best players to ever suit up. And uh, you know, he's been doing fine uh, away from the game and and quietly. Uh, did some some hitting work with A Rod before the season, and that wasn't talked really? about a whole lot. But he he worked with A Rod before the season started a little bit. Uh, I think that's one of the great stories too. I mean, I I want to talk about Toronto, and I also want to talk about this whole idea of bat flipping and, mm. and decorum. Don't, yeah. don't forget that Jamal. Okay. Uh, if I wrote a column about it, the people are still talking about it. Cause I'm, but 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 my, my the reason I brought up Bonds, well, it gets back to your point about sometimes you have great players. That the only thing they have not accomplished is winning the championship, mm-hmm. and I happen to agree with you. When I in sports, when I judge people, 
there's, there, you have great players, then you've got this little tiny room. you got a room of the people who won championships. Five, somebody said six, that's even a smaller room. Right. I do think, I'm not sure what it is, but there's something. Now, you, you could argue that it's bad luck, maybe I was just on the wrong team or something, but I do think there, and I don't know what it, what it is that separates great players who have won championships, great players who have won multiple championships, great players who've never won championships. I just wonder what you what you uh, we've talked about what you think about that. What you think about that? You know, when you start ranking some of the great players of all time, whether you're talking about uh, the NFL, the NBA, or Major League Baseball, but specifically, let, let's say uh, an NFL quarterback, right? How are all NFL quarterbacks judged? They don't they don't talk about their numbers so much. They talk about their rings, right? And there are some amazing players who have never won championships. I think Dan Marino he's never won it. Yo, he's yeah, he's the one that I think about that never won, never won a championship. I mean, and in baseball, so many players, right? Did did Barkley, Charles Barkley in the no, NBA? Nope. nope. Charles Barkley, Patrick to me, Ewing. Patrick Ewing. You're talking about guys who belong in the the top fifteen players of all time who never won championships. Now, we know sports, right? So we can we can say that, okay, look, based off of their numbers, the era that they played in, these guys are studs. But your your average fan will look at these guys and, you know, 20 years from now when, when a lot of people don't remember what they played, they'll look it up and they'll say, how many championships did they win? And man, you know, I, that's just the one thing. To this day, I've been retired. You know, this is my fifth season out now. And it is the one thing that I wanted so bad. And, you know, you just run out of time, whether it's time or opportunity, the team you played on. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, a player, a player can put up unbelievable numbers, right? But if you don't get that title, Sometimes it can call into question the the validity of their career, how good they really were. Can they be? Can you? Be, and that's a question. Can you be considered one of the greats of all time without that championship? Yeah, I mean, I think you have. I think yes, you can be. And I just want to get your perspective perspective on it. I mean, you played at a high level. You, like you said, you almost got to World Series. I mean, to me, it's it's there is luck involved in it. You know, who's on your team? Who do you have around you? Who's your GM? Who's your coach? You know, you couldn't, nobody can do it by themselves. Jordan right. could have done it by himself. No. He had two other Hall of no. Famers on his team. But, but on the other hand, though, Jamal, again, this, this is coming from a cynical sports writer. But <laughs> not cynical, but uh, in most of our Sometimes life, cynical. cynical. <laughs> right. As I get older, right. you know, you realize, what the hell is this shit about? You know, but that's another conversation about right. life. You know? Right. But, but no, I mean, in most of our most of our lives is determined by subjectivity. I mean, I'm a journalist, and there's nothing more subjective than that. You know, one editor or one set of readers may love what you write. The next said, ah, you know, I don't like that. There's a lot of subjectivity in sports, particularly the blood sports, football, basketball, baseball, which is why I think black people tend to do well in these sports because there's what? There's a scoreboard, mm. right? There's uh, standings. First, second, third, fourth, they're standing. It's very finite. Who jumps highest, who runs fast, it's not 
well, your daddy, we, we're going to intercede here. And I, so I think that there is something to be said for, you know, I think Jordan said once something very interesting about Barkley. You know, he was kidding, but he wasn't. He said, well, you know, Charles really wasn't as committed to winning <laughs> as he should. And it was a stinging statement. Mm. But why did, why did Kobe get on Shaq? Mm. You know, Kobe got on Shaq because he said, man, you know, you come in and out of shape. And I, I think that there is something to be said for uh, when you reflect on your career. Did I do? Yes, I was a great player. Right. But did I make everybody else great? Did I drive? Mm. Did I take on the extra mm. responsibility yeah. to make everybody else great to, to the extent yeah. of being hated yeah. by my teammates? My father used to say that part of your responsibility as a veteran player or a, a leader on your team is to make the people around you great. And I, I never had to carry a team on my shoulders by myself and that that wasn't my game I had a couple seasons where I was one of the better players on the team uh, let's say 2006 in in Texas and 2007 when I was a free agent uh, I just landed in LA I had you know great years in in those those couple years there but I was never the guy to carry you know a, a team and, and I think baseball is different one because you have 24 other guys on the team with you but you know there are some sports like let's say uh, a quarterback in the NFL, uh, your your superstar on an NBA team. Those guys are expected to carry the weight of the franchise, and by and large, they do that. A uh, LeBron James, a um, you know you just spoke about Charles Barkley, Jordan. You know these guys they carry the weight of a franchise. A, a a Kobe, you know these guys make Brady. the people around them better. A Tom Brady. You look at you look at Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Now, you know I don't know about you. We, we may have had a discussion between the, there are certain teams to do well between the twenty. From the twenty to twenty, they are like just killing you. They go from the twenty to the twenty, up and down the field. Up. Right. But now when it gets time to go from the twenty in, there's a whole other category of people that some people say, well, no, you know what? Once they get down there, it's over. You know? Right. So if you ask me, okay, who would you want? Two minutes left to go in the game. We're down by five. We got to score. Who do you want? Name five quarterbacks who you want. Or in baseball, who do you not want? Who do you not absolutely not want to face? Right. I mean, I don't even know if you can name five quarterbacks in F NFL right now that you want them, you know, in the red zone. I mean, I, I think about Tom Brady to Gronkowski right now. I mean, that is that's kind of unstoppable. Gronkowski, you can't stop this guy right now. You know, the guy looks like he's about 6'6", 250 pounds and runs a 4540 and you know, the program that they have with Belichick. And I, I know, you know, I'm in I'm Belichick. in New York right now, right? The Belichick factor is is huge, but the program that they have set up and the discipline that this team seems to have you know, they work so well. You know, I think of Ben Ben Roethlisberger also. You know, he's another quarterback to me, you know, in the red zone, a couple minutes left in the game. You know, Roethlisberger, regardless of the guys around him, I, I just love his grit and his ability to just find a way to, to get it done. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's – I don't know if there are five, and I'm I'm sure, you know, you could – who do you got for your third? Well, there's Rodgers. 
Roger, Aaron Rodgers is a beast right now. Yeah. Now, Russell Wilson is just one of those guys. Now, but let me ask you a question. I mean, let me say something. See how interesting it is, and this is going to the essence of baseball. We were having this conversation about baseball, and this is a debate about is baseball relevant. It's a great game, obviously. But what we've done, well, maybe I did it, but we, we, we've talked, we go into baseball playoffs, and we start talking about football. And I'm wondering, do you <laughs> right. think it's just a better game, that football is just a better game? It, it, it's, it's more plugged in to the American psyche, maybe bas- uh, basketball, than baseball? Ooh, you know, I, I've got, you know, obviously I'm biased, right? You can't ask a man who's, who spent the better part you know, 37 of my 41 years on this earth have involved being in or around a baseball game. So I have a, a very long uh, love affair with, with the game of baseball. But the the popularity of the NFL and even the NBA is undeniable. And I don't have uh, statistics to sit here and back up popularity within a certain age group or demographic, but I think it's clear because we're, we're sitting here talking about it. It's clear that the popularity of the NFL uh, and the NBA is, is better than it, it ever has been. And, and how you know, the NFL will, will deal with some of the problems that they've had uh, as far as the concussions, you know, that, that's a big deal. You know, have you seen the numbers on uh, parents who are letting their young children play uh, Pop Warner or Pee Wee League football? I mean, the numbers have, have gone down dramatically just based off of the information and numbers that we're getting on concussions and the effects that they have on your brain. You know, so the NFL, to me, clearly, though popular, we love the game, right? And the numbers say so. But the, the NFL clearly has an issue with the concussions and how they're going to deal with uh, the fact that a lot of parents aren't letting their kids play the game now. I'm interested to see how those numbers impact the future of the NFL. That's, that's interesting. We talked about this on a previous podcast. Just This is kind of an interesting segue. But... You know, coming, you know, it's a new age. You you brought up the NFL. They're trying to, you know, the rules have changed. You can't hit the way you used to be able to hit. The NBA is a lot different now than it was in the 80s in terms of the Detroit Pistons. You don't play like that. You Bad don't see, boys. You don't right. see fouls no, like that. The, a, no. little, a little uh, hand check could be a flagrant nowadays right. in the NBA. And, but baseball is a little slow to the game, I feel like. You still, you still get um, pitchers hitting batters. Um, you, you know, they just, they just recently took out the home plate collisions. And then, of course, we had the whole Utley, uh, you know, the second base sure. situation. What, what, what's your feeling? Sure. Yeah. What's your feeling on the Utley I, situation? Yeah, I, I had a conversation. It's interesting that you say this. I had a conversation with my brother last week. My brother, Dell, uh, Dell Matthews, is the assistant farm director with the Chicago White Sox. And so he is based in Chicago. And even though he's helping them uh, run the minor leagues and, you know, he'll go out on special assignments and and uh, but he called me and sent me a text message last week when he saw the, the Utley play. And asked what I thought about the plays, like legal or not legal. And I said, you know, it was never my thing to go in. I'm going to go in and break up a double play. But I didn't want to get hurt. 
And I didn't want to be responsible for hurting someone else. And Chase Utley, I don't think he had malicious intent. I think there were two things here. And when I see that play setting up, I think Chase Utley, though near the bag, near the base, slid really late. And I think the second baseman, was it Tejada? Ruben Tejada did a really bad job of getting out of the way. And so, you know, one of the mistakes that he made was, you know, he turned his back to the runner. And you you never turn your back on a runner when you've got a guy coming in full speed. I mean, back in the the day, you know, you talk about some of the, the NBA teams. I mean, back in the day in Major League Baseball, you know, there were some guys that would get down the second base on an infielder breaking up a double play. In a hurry, I remember seeing video of my dad sliding the second base, doing barrel rolls in the second baseman. You know, they, who does that? Like no one, no one plays like that anymore. And, and there's a reason. It's because guys are making 15 million a year, and no one wants to be in a position where they're maiming somebody, possibly ruining their career, someone else's career, and they don't want to get hurt themselves. You know, so the game is played you know, much differently than it is. And so when I think about that play, I think they're kind of both at fault there. I I guess Utley catches the brunt of the criticism because, you know, someone ended up with a a broken leg. You know, Tejada ends up with a broken leg and, you know, the the Mets had him walk out there on with the cane and <laughs> paraded him out like, there with the cane. Like, that, I saw that and I was like, ooh. Oh, they, like, they, 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 they like they wouldn't riot. Right. <laughs> People. Oh, man, they, they went hard. I, I felt bad for Chase. I, I felt bad for Tejada. Here's a young player who doesn't have the opportunity now to play in the playoffs because of the – because of this play, but I think they're both at fault. I think they've both learned. One, Chase Utley, you know, this isn't 83 or 84 when guys were coming in hot, barrel rolling second baseman and shortstops to break up double plays. And I think Tejada has learned that, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to turn my back on a runner to to barehand the ball and do a spin play. Maybe I should be more concerned about getting one foot on the bag, catch the ball, and get the hell out the he way. Didn't get it, he didn't give his foot on the bag. Not only you let you oh, laying on the it, yes. writhing in pain. Yeah. Was, well, and by the way. Insult to injury, bag. yes, and I'm safe. Yes, you know, so, you know, it was – I think it's a regrettable play that they will both learn from. And, and really, I don't think it is such such a big deal. I just think it's an ugly play that, that happens sometime in the heat of the moment. I mean, you've got a matter of seconds uh, to think about this play. Utley's got a matter of seconds to, to break up the double play. And Tejada's got you know a fraction of a few seconds to think about, okay, how am I going to get this off? Am I going to – catch the ball, touch the back, and get out of the way, or am I going to barehand it, spin, spin move, and try and jump over Utley? And so all these things happen within a matter of a couple seconds, you know, and, and we're able to analyze it in slow motion, you know, 72 hours later, right? And, and they don't have that luxury at that moment. Right, so two, two questions. One, what do you think about the suspension? What's your take on that? And then secondly, what do you think about the future of baseball, you know, policing themselves, you know, pitchers hitting players. Right. I think the suspension was a surprise. For them to come come out with a two-game suspension, to me, I look at that and, you know, and I hope people aren't too critical of this statement, but I look at a two-game suspension straight out of the gate for a questionable slide was more about publicity rather than 
uh, wanting to do something uh, as punishment right. for the slide. The playing to the crowd. Yeah, I, I, I think you know this happened during the postseason, and had this happened during the regular season, one outside of New York, we probably wouldn't have heard about it, right. and there definitely wouldn't have been a suspension. But because it happened uh, on the national stage with one of the, the biggest teams in the league, right, most powerful organizations, any team in New York, right, is going to uh, get a certain amount of attention. And so I, I was surprised with the, with the suspension. And the game of baseball has always kind of policed itself. And the rule is somewhat, depending on the situation, an eye for an eye. You know, you hit our superstar, we're going to hit your superstar. The rule is he just can't get hit above the shoulders. And that's, that's how I was taught. And so when someone gets out of line, and we talked about whether it's uh, what is perceived as a dirty slide or a uh, bat flip that, that maybe has a little extra mustard on it, as we would, we would say, the game polices itself. And when you do things like that, there may or may not be some retribution, and you have to expect that. And as long as someone doesn't throw a ball above your shoulders, you know, putting you in a really difficult position, then no one's going to make a big deal about it. And, and I don't think those things about the game should change. I'd, I'd like to see the game of baseball continue to police itself. And, and this is, you know, you, you think about other sports and you think about fighting in hockey, you know, does the, does the really big hockey fan want to see fights changed in the NHL? And I, I think the answer is probably no. You know, but uh, there are higher ups, right? And there are uh, corporate sponsors who might think otherwise. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. Let's go back to the bathroom because I, I, actually I wrote a column in the Times that I, I disagree with everything you just said. I said, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I said that, that the, the unwritten, and, and maybe for people, I mean, baseball has more unwritten laws. I mean, the NFL has a law, they have rules against excessive celebrations and uh, baseball and taunting. Other than that, though, those sports, it's, they're emotional sports. And so they, you know, people, the brother, you know, throwing the ball, spiking, uh, sometimes taunting, talking trash, all these kind of stuff. It's an emotional, these are emotionally baseball, I call it button up. I call it the team versions of golf. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, like, well, there's, a, give me five, give me just five unwritten rules. For oh, example. man, five unwritten rules uh, so you uh, in baseball. With an eye for okay. an eye. Let's say, uh, you know, an eye for an eye. You hit our superstar, we're going to hit your superstar, and, and then it's going to be done, and no one's going to say, say anything about it, right? That's, that's one. Uh, rule two is when you hit superstar A, right, it should never be above the shoulders. And when someone, get hits, someone gets hit in their head, then we've got a possible fight 
that's going to go down. And I guess that is, you know, rule two of the unwritten rules. Uh, gosh, un- unwritten rule number three, let's say uh, stealing bases late in the game of a blowout. You know, this is something the casual fan doesn't understand. But when you steal a base in the, you know, let's say anywhere between the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, and your team is already up by 10 runs, it's called showing up the other team. Uh, that would be rule number three. Uh, and also, this is kind of a, a funky rule, but, uh, you know, let's say a third base coach who is in that position, a team is up by 10 runs late in the game, who is maybe having a runner score from first base. You know, usually they'll they'll hold you up. Even if someone hits a triple in the gap, they'll hold you up and you just go first to third. You know, so it's just – I like these rules about the game. You know, I, well, I, I do. I'm the pitcher's mouth. I, Remember the guy got on A-Rod because he was he was coming back. He was he was, in, he was a hitter and it was foul ball something. And when he came back from third back to first, he crossed – he, he crossed through the pitcher's mound. Right, and right. And the pitcher got pissed off. He walked, yeah, he ran over the pitcher's mound, and the pitcher got, got mad. I remember that. And this happened, what, about four four or five years ago or something like that, was it? Was it one or two? Yeah, I, it was like, and the guy was like this nobody pitcher. Right. So, man, you shouldn't even, you should get right. permission to even talk to me. The rule is, yes, you, you have to be a superstar pitcher to even say something like that yeah. and open up your mouth. Right. But I was then taught. he gets hit. Having yes, having having a father who who played this game and having played the game myself, my thing was always listen. We're not going to act a fool, act like a fool on TV. If you have that big a problem with anything that I do, there is nothing but space and opportunity separating us when this game is over, and no cameras have to see it, no reporters have to see it. So you know, I've been of. The, the adage that if I had that pro- that big of a problem with a pitcher who I thought hit me on purpose, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I played on Team A, and, and you know those of you who know my career will be able to figure out, but I used to play on Team A. The next year I signed with Team B, and a player uh, on my previous team uh, hit me maybe a month into the season. I, I played... Uh, went back to my old team for the first time, and this player, uh, pitcher, who I had played really hard for and uh, brought back plenty of home runs, right? <laughs> because at the time he wasn't that good. And uh, this guy hit me. And instead of charging the mound and acting like a fool on camera in front of really fans that I had played in front of for four years of my career – I decided to make a phone call after the game. And so when this game ended, I went into the visiting clubhouse because we were playing on the road, and I called this player. And I said, hey, uh, you hit me during the game, and you gave me a look like you had a problem with me. So I want to know, do we have a problem? And if it's that big of a problem, we can come handle it right now. We are 50 feet away from each other. Our locker rooms and clubhouse, not that far away. And I did this out of the public eye. And that is another unwritten rule for me. If it is that big of a problem and you got something to handle, then you handle it behind the scenes, away from cameras, away from reporters. And that way, 
No one's losing their job. No one is getting suspended, and no one gets bad publicity. What happened? Uh, everything was okay. It, <laughs> accor- according to him, he didn't have a problem, and it just quote unquote the ball got away from him. Right. I mean, well, getting back to this police, I and I respect where you're coming from as far as you don't want to see the game change, and, and you're a player, so I, I get that. But my question is, why is it a lot? Even despite that, why is that allowed? Look at other sports, the NBA. You're not, you're getting blown out. They're still throwing alley oops. It's not, it's not, it's not <laughs> right. acceptable for the other team to get an elbow in your jaw. In your jaw, they're right. gonna get suspended for that. Right. You know, in football, you're not. They're not gonna throw. A, you're getting blown out on the field. It's not acceptable to throw a chop block and right. get somebody else out of the game. Why is it still acceptable for for baseball? You know, I I wouldn't consider the. The slide might have looked like a chop block, <laughs> right? right? But, but I, I don't think there was – I think that you got to consider the intent behind it. And so I don't think there was malicious intent. And I think a, an elbow uh, to your mouth and, and picking up teeth like uh, a la A.C. Green is, uh, is way more deliberate, right, than a – 95 mile an hour fastball that that quote unquote got away from a pitcher you know you're able to disguise that a little bit better and so it's open to interpretation of the players interpretation of the umpires who are out on the field at that time and and even the league office I just think they're able to disguise it a lot better and you know when you uh you're throwing uh elbows and and uh blocking people out uh and uh, alley ooping and clowning on someone when when they're up, you know, thirty points. You know, that's probably an unwritten rule in in basketball. Yeah, you know, enforcers. I mean, every sport, you know, every sport has enforcers and who will take care of. So. Oh, right. Goodness. Oh, that was loud. Sorry, this is Bill Roden on sports. We just had a fumble here, but uh, I, I was about to go again. Uh, what about uh, I want to get back to bat flip so because that you know because uh, that goes into Toronto. What you what are your thoughts about the bat flip and the big issue was I mean I think it's it's kind of silly but why not uh, Batista Toronto dramatic home run bat flip stare celebrating what what what's your sense about about the bat flipping phenomenon? I heard all I've heard all of the arguments right the argument that. The, the time when he hit the home run, the importance of the home run to that organization, and, and who hit the home run, right? We, we understand all of those things, but there is a certain amount of decorum that comes along with playing Major League Baseball and being a Major League Baseball player. And I think there is a way to uh, emphasize the importance of the moment and uh, what it means to the organization and the fans, what that moment means. But there's still a way to respect your opponent and, and show respect to the game. And, and I think when he looks back at this moment, right, at the time, I think he handled this great, right? He had no comment on it, right? But I think he'll look back at this moment and think like, ooh, maybe that was a little bit extra. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit too much. I didn't have... I had a problem with the pause and the staring down of the pitcher. You know, we don't know the history 
of those two teams. We don't know the history of those two players. But um, and I'm not uh, condemning him on it. But uh, I'm not condoning it either. Right. Shouldn't have given it up. Yeah. If look, you didn't give up the run, there'd be no stand. Look, there'd be I, no bat flip. I <laughs> I agree. But but here we go. Back to the unwritten unwritten rule. So next season, when Batista catches a 95 mile an hour fastball in the back, he's got to know there's nothing we can do about it that I might have had it coming because I might have put a little bit extra on that home run. And, you know, what I never forget is that inside every great moment for a player, there's also a losing moment for my opponent. And that's never lost on me. And that's part of being a, uh, a gentleman of the game, if you will. You know, there, there are these moments, right? Uh, your victories, they're – it's the greatest feeling ever, uh, professionally. But that moment is also someone else's down moment. And that's also someone's worst moment, professionally. And if you, you play the game knowing that, I feel like you never kind of lose sight or never have those moments when that are called into question. And, uh, you know, look, I've never... Never hit a big home run like that. I've hit some game-winning home runs and had some unbelievable moments in the game. But for me, this is just how I was taught to play the game and, and being taught uh, the game by a, a father who was taught by players like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. You know, and, and I'm not comparing myself to those players, but that's the lineage that, that I was taught from. You know, My father was, played with Willie Mays. Later on in his career, Willie Mays was was taught by Hank Aaron. And, and, you know, I came along after my father. And so, you know, these are the the type of men who I learned the game from. And so you you act accordingly, you know, on and off the field. And so I I never had a reason, never felt like I had a reason to show anyone up on the field. Now, did I have some fun? And, you know, did I play a little bit pretty sometimes, as my brother would say? Yeah, you know, my, my brother asked, you know, would you ever slide like that? I was like, nah, you know, I, I probably wouldn't try and break up a double play like that. And my brother Dell says, yeah, that's because your game was a little pretty. You, you didn't want, <laughs> you wanted to look good, you know? And, and so I won't deny that, you know? I like to look good, but I, I love to win also, and I hated to lose. Yeah, I remember, and I, I guess there's uh... – uh, Gary Matthews Jr. We've been having just a, a great conversation about this is like part two. We've talked before. We're gonna have to talk again. But uh, man, now I just thought I had this hell of a question. Like, uh, I just forgot <laughs> about what the question was. Um, you know, but oh, oh, I know. Do you, do you think that baseball then is just a more decent game than the other? Yeah, you know, I was just at uh, the, the Jets played a game uh, yesterday, and you know we're in the middle of the football season and. There's just a lot of emotion. We're getting ready to come up on the NBA season, which is nothing but theater and Broadway and you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people in shorts and you know, just showing up. I, I played football in college, so I guess I always had a thing about basketball players that they were printing. But, I was, but is baseball, do you think, just a more, a decent, more decent sport? I don't know what it is about baseball, let's say, uh, that tends to bring out a – 
a more, and I'm going to catch some flack for this, but maybe a more knowledgeable fan, a more subdued fan. It's a slower game, so there's not this high energy. There's not this gladiator aspect of it. And, you know, those are different uh, different types of, of games. It's a different type of fan that I notice. And though you might be a, a huge uh, Mets fan, and you can be a Jets fan, but to me, a, a football game atmosphere is so much different than the atmosphere at a Major League Baseball game. Right. And I was, I was at an NFL game probably four years ago with a girlfriend at the time, and I hadn't been to an NFL game in a really long time. I think I had been at, at Soldier Field with my dad. Like It had been years since I'd been to an NFL game. And the atmosphere was so aggressive. I mean, you're talking a lot of drunk people, right? Full of beer and alcohol and face paint, right? <laughs> and wigs and, uh, you know, you know, ogling your girl and making crazy comments. And I thought, man, this I will come back to an NFL game, but it definitely won't be with my woman. You know, <laughs> like that is just – it's a recipe for disaster, and and I don't I can't remember where I was. Jets, Jets. Man, you know it it might have been it might have been a Raiders game or well, something no, like that's, that. That's yeah, a different thing. But the atmosphere, I was really surprised at the atmosphere at an NFL game, and you know it's something about the uh, the alcohol consumption. But I was just like, man, there were just so many comments and staring at your girl, and just you know, look, people are gonna look right. But be respectful about it. You know, <laughs> something about the NFL game uh, and and the aggression right. that comes with the atmosphere. And it's barbaric. It's barbaric, sure. no question. That's but that's right. why it's a billion dollar, multi billion dollar industry. And you you talked earlier about who's going to play the game, mothers keeping their kids from playing. There's another attitude. Like, other parents, well, great, that's more for me. Yeah, <laughs> my know? my younger brother, my younger brother, Dell. His middle son, Dawson, my little nephew, Dawson, is playing Pop Warner football. And we were talking about the personality that you need to have to even have the courage to step on a football field, right? It's one thing to watch it or play some flag football or some, some street football like we used to play when we were kids, right? Tag football on the street. And a completely another thing to have the courage to lace up some pads on a field. And so his middle son has that that personality where he likes to go out and get hit. And my brother said he likes the discipline required and the team atmosphere for him. And, you know, it's not for everyone. And so, you know, I, we've talked about the numbers uh, uh, going down for youths who are now playing Pop Warner. But – my brother is one of those people who are letting their kids play Pop Warner football. And I think it comes down to uh, instruction, I think, and teaching kids to hit the proper way. And what way that is, I don't know, because it just seems like eventually you have so many hits, you're going to get some concussions well, eventually. Yes, It's a 100% right. injury game. I mean, right. forget about it's it. It's just a matter of time. But right. – but for right now, my younger brother is letting his son play Pop Warner football, and my little nephew Dawson loves it. Right. Unless you play like I played, and then you always, you know, I'd 
Yeah. Where Where did you play football? I went to Morgan, Morgan State. Okay. And Baltimore. We actually, when I was there, we actually had a, a great program. You know, when I got there, again, this is another conversation, but it was, it was like sort of like the Negro Leagues in that you had all this great talent concentrated in Grambling, Jackson State, right. Alcorn, just because we're talking about 68, 69, and even beyond, you know, before that, because a lot of schools in the South just weren't recruiting black athletes. Right, in any yeah. Number. So you had mm -hmm. all this great concentration of people like you had them in the Negro League. Of talent, of right. They had a lot of talent, and it was, a, it was sort of a great, it was a great moment. I mean, we, I, I just, oh, I'm so thankful that I went to a historically black college, particularly now that, now that I know, I see what I see. And, and, and Jamal, actually, Jamal went to North Carolina A&T. Right. Right? Okay. Our, our, well, our rivals, our hated rivals. But, Two of my younger brothers went to HBCUs. My right? brother, Dell went to Texas Southern. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I have another brother that played at FAMU out in Florida. Yeah. yeah those are great. In fact, um, the SWAC. The SWAC. <laughs> right. You know, we, listen, I played the CIAA, MEAC, but you're talking about trash talking. Uh, my sophomore year, I started, I started when I was a sophomore at Morgan. And so it was an awful season. It's probably one of the worst. It was just terrible. I was a defensive back. Right. And I was just getting beat at like every every single game. Just like just <laughs> getting beat. You know, right. it, but it, it, but I had not learned the the uh the lesson of confidence. Right. Ninety nine percent of this stuff is confidence. Mm -hmm. You know, which is a lesson is just amazing yeah. as you get older. And I'm sure you you're, you you always confidence. Oh, is there just there's so some and there's some trash talk at HBCU uh, sports, you know, on those teams. Just, just on the campus. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, just right. And the, going right. over, like, being a Q or pledging. Yeah. It's, it's the whole thing. So, so there was a guy who played for Te Texas Southern named Kenny Burrow. He wore a double zero. He was All-American. This guy was a senior. And we played them, at, like, at a bowl game at, down at the Astrodome. And so – and I always kid my, my friend Mark Washington, who was a senior defensive back on the other side. So I'm like, now I didn't think about it. I said, Mark, how come you didn't guard this guy? So, you know, <laughs> right. I, I didn't think about this. So all I know is it was just a horrible night. And this guy, was he caught three touchdown passes. And on one play, he dropped the ball. You know, he caught it, dropped the ball. And he picked up the ball, came over to me, he said, I dropped that. <laughs> just to let me know that you had nothing at all right. to do you with that. You had nothing to do nothing. with you that. Had, right. I dropped it. I just remember, right. even today, it was 37 years, I remember he came and said, I dropped that. <laughs> but and to me, when, when you think back on it, you know, I'm like thinking of Richard Sherman and all that, you know, I always think of the defensive back because when you get scored on or, or a pitcher gives us a home run or whatever, there's always a glee. So I said, you know what, when it's my turn, I'm going to talk a whole lot of shit because I oh, know. And, and I'm going to let you know. Right. right. I'm going to let you know when I get an interception. You know, I'm, I'm not just going to walk off the field. I'm going to say something because I know that when you score, you're going to say you something. You let me have it. Right. <laughs> I, I, always, I always like the adage, uh, you know, act like you've been there before. Yes. And, I, you know, I always loved that when, you know, in high school and college I played but what uh, basketball. That, that just means – I think it's it, you know you're showing confidence. You score. You do something that's you know maybe spectacular, and you act like it was nothing. And that that probably hurts them just as much. You act like you expected to do it. You know right. that that was how I played the game. You know I, I didn't want to show anyone up. I didn't have any trash talk when I hit a home run, which wasn't that many, right? <laughs> but I did a little bit of everything well. But. I wanted to act like I expected to do it because deep down, I truly did. I expected to play well. I expected to win. 
And, and you know, baseball is a completely different sport. And my younger brother, who I just talked about, uh, my middle brother played at FAMU, played baseball at FAMU on a, on a baseball scholarship. And he had never experienced the trash talk that goes on at HBCUs. And, and he was just you know, unprepared for that level of trash talk in baseball. <laughs> right. I mean, who, who trash talks in baseball? I've never seen anything like it. But, you know, it's different. You know, playing against those teams, playing against Southern, Jackson State, uh, teams like that, you know, they, they did some trash talking. And it, it's a fun game, you know. And I remember going down to uh, a game or two and thinking that this must have been what the Negro Leagues were like. It's a really fast game. You know, and a lot of these kids, they – you know, they haven't had uh, the best coaching and instruction along the way, but clearly, you know, a really talented game, a really fast-paced game, and, I, and, and some power. And so I remember thinking, wow, this must have been what the Negro Leagues was probably like back in the day. Just, a, you know, Negro Leagues had to be a really fast and powerful game and some serious trash talking, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? And then you, you, you figure it's so hard. It was like the Chitlin circuit. Cause yeah. you travel on buses and, 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 and it's just a whole, it was just a whole, it was, it was a black culture and microcosm Yeah. because it was a talent, but it was hard. Yeah. And, and knowing that for 99% of you, you had no shot of, of getting playing, to the of, major of, leagues. Of yeah. the major, I mean, no shot at all. So right. think about what that was like just to yeah. be able to play. Have you have, you, you're just playing basically cause you love the game, love the competition and you see these other guys playing in major league baseball, knowing that you could compete with them. Right. And I'm saying, you know what? We don't care how good you are. And I think that's what people don't understand about racism. They said, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter about the quality. You're not going to play because mm. we're just not going to let you play. Man, you know? I mean, it's when you think about the talent level in the Negro Leagues, right? Like not everyone would have played right. in the major leagues. Right. And we know that. Right. But there were clearly some players that belonged in the major leagues, but never got the opportunity. You think about a Josh Gibson, right. you know, who is the all-time home run leader of the Negro Leagues. You think about a cool pop, James mm. Cool Papa Bell. Mm. You know, I would have loved to have seen these guys play. My son asked me a couple weeks ago. He's like, Dad, if you could see anyone play, who would you want to play? And really quickly, I, I was like, Oh, no doubt, I want to see some of these. Negro League barnstorming games, you know, to see these players all all in one place. And and I'm talking about the the Negro League all star teams right. that would go travel around, barnstorm and play some major league teams and, you know, beat up on some of these major league all star teams of, of their day. You know, can you imagine going back and seeing a, a Negro League all star game? with you know the Yankees or right. you know some of those top tier teams at the time just you know what an amazing thing it would have been to see that, that brings me you know to the obvious question you know we I don't know if we talked about this last time I'm sure we probably did but you know we always talk about the lack of black players or african-american players mm. now but you know not you know this question is not really addressing why or why not but I'm, I'm interested in, in what you feel uh, you know the, that the game is missing now that it had before. You know, with with less now that there are less black players. Mm -hmm. Like to me, what comes to mind is the is is the 
demise of the stolen base. Sure. You know, I remember, you know, Vince Coleman used to steal about 100 bases. Now, like, yeah. the leader in the league has 30. Right. So I'm wondering any other, if, if you agree with that or any other areas in the there's, game. There is, well, when I think about the, the stolen base, there's two reasons for that. And one is the money that's involved in the home runs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a saying, uh, and I can't remember who said it, it might have been a, a Nike commercial but it said chicks dig the long ball well ownerships dig the long ball too and they and they pay right and they pay a certain amount of money and i think they figured out players and agents figured out that they don't pay for stolen bases but they will definitely pay you for home runs Mm. and so i think there's been a shift and an emphasis on productive players and players figured out that if I hit more home runs and score more runs and drive in more runs, I will get paid more stolen bases. Don't get me anything but worn out legs or hurt. <laughs> and you know, I, I would have stolen a lot more bases uh, if it would have really been required of me. But I figured out that being a center fielder, I had a little bit of power. I would hit, you know, if I played a full season between 17 and 19 home runs and I would play, played well defensively. And so that was my job. My job wasn't to steal bases. It just doesn't pay to steal bases. And you you look at the game now and it's, you know, it's reverting back to players, uh, just, I guess, specialized roles. So there are leadoff hitters who have that traditional speedy leadoff hitter role. But now you're seeing a lot of, of leadoff hitters who can be really productive. And, uh, you know, I think about, you know, some of your bigger leadoff hitters now, Dexter Fowler, you know, switch hitting center fielder for uh, the Chicago Cubs. He kind of reminds me of, of myself, you know, kind of a tall, rangy guy who isn't necessarily a speed guy but leads off because of his versatility, his ability to do a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, really, I think the stolen base died just because of the, um, the evolution of home runs and the importance of uh, productive players. It's fascinating. My guest has been the great Gary Matthews Jr. This is wonderful, man. This is part two. You got now that you're thinking about spending more time on the East Coast, in New York City, you got to come back. We've got to sort of have these regular. We're definitely going to have you back during the playoffs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe, maybe stuff. before the uh, as we get to the World Series, yeah. I come back for a visit. We do this again. Yeah, absolutely, particularly if the Mets are in the in the which I think they got a real shot. Looking good. They're looking good. That's Jamal Murphy, the Mets fan. Really, I mean, I think I think the Mets really have a shot. Right, putting you on the spot. If you had to choose oh, two man. people in the World Series. Uh, at this point, who, who, who do you think it would be? And give us a winner. And a winner. You, you're putting me on the spot right now. Draft, I mean, I mean, look, it, it's <laughs> – I think it would be pretty easy and a safe bet if I said the Mets are going to go to the World Series, right? They're up two games to none right. in the N- NLCS. What's the name? Pitching. Right. They got uh, DeGrom. Is DeGrom coming back? Yep. And then uh, – Possibly Bartolo Colon, or or do they run it back with uh, Harvey or uh, Syndergaard? I think they're going Mets, another young kid. Right. Pitched about five innings uh, last series. Okay. I think they're going to keep Colon in the long relief. Right. 
All right. Well, look, he's there in a pinch if if they need it, you know, and they'll probably bring him in if someone has a really short outing is probably how they're going to use him in that long relief role. And then in the American League, I mean, how about Kansas City running it back again? You know, their their ability to play defense and pitch. And the question is, can Toronto continue to hit the long ball? If Toronto doesn't hit the long ball, then I don't think they'll be able to get it done. And if Kansas City pitches and plays defense, has some timely hitting, which is what playoffs are all about, then I got a New York Mets and Kansas City Royals matchup. And who do you have winning that? I think the Mets, I would say. So, I mean, is it possible for the Mets to stay this hot? I don't know. Can the Mets stay this hot and can they continue to score runs? I don't know. They're going to pitch. We know that. The Mets are going to pitch. The question is, are they going to play defense and are they going to continue to hit? And the team that continues to pitch, play defense, and have a little bit of hitting is a team that's going to have a chance to win this World Series. It's not going to be some blowout. You know, you're not going to see all the home runs that you normally see. And that's why I – I question whether Toronto's going to continue to hit the long ball. Price struggle too, which is a little, little surprising. Which is really surprising because he's got electric stuff, electric stuff. I mean, who knows? I mean, this time of year, it's not just about you got to look inside the numbers. And, you know, they always say that good pitching stops good hitting. But this time of year, you start to see the innings pile up on pitchers. And, you know, some pitchers are upwards of 250 innings at this time of year. And you look at uh, Arietta's decline on the fastball. You know, he was off by three or four miles per hour. And that's not the cold or being nervous. That's fatigue. Mm. And so the question is, you know, whoever can kind of persevere through the fatigue that they have going on at this time of year as the pitching you know, gets upwards of 250 innings in a year. That's a lot of innings, yeah. you know. And so all those things combined, it's going to make for a really good storyline. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, there's so much more to ask, but we'll, we'll, we'll save some. I was going to ask you about Matt Harvey. Did you, did you agree with the, the decision to, to, uh, to not uh, – his agent was saying we're going to put him on a pitch count because – for precisely the reason you mentioned. Right. That we don't want these guys – arm hanging over hanging yeah, city that, field. that was another thing I talked to my my younger brother about my brother Dell who's the assistant farm director with the White Sox he asked what I thought about uh, the Mets and them holding uh, you know, holding the innings back and just the whole saga that was going on between the the player the organization and the agent and I saw I see both sides of this coin I really do uh, as a competitor and a teammate, I have a responsibility to my teammates to, as we call it, show and go. You, you got to show up and you got to go handle business. But he's also coming off of an injury. And there are a certain amounting, amount of innings earmarked for that player when you're coming off of an injury. And so I see both sides of this. You know, the uh, Matt Harvey's got – a responsibility to himself also to make sure that he's healthy. I mean, we're not talking about a couple million dollars here. We're talking about probably $250 million, right? Hence the agent. As a free agent, yes. And then you have your agent who says, hold on here, right? The agent's got a play in this also. Three to 5% 
of $250 million uh, specifically is what the agent has right. to gain from all of this. And so uh, they all have should have some say in this, right? right? The organization, Harvey, the agent, and the doctor, Dr. Andrews, should all of them should have a say. I just think they all of them would probably regret how it was played out in the media. This is something that probably should have happened behind closed doors and they should have had a plan of action even for you know what they were going to say, what the statement was going to be uh, publicly as his innings start to reach that 180 innings point. You know, there should have been a plan and I don't think they had had that plan. I don't clearly the Mets didn't think they'd be in this position, right? right. That's the, that's, that's, the key. That's, right. that's the key. How do you, you know, how do you balance it in terms of the player, where a guy like you know I'll, I'll compare Harvey to Strasburg when they shut Strasburg down and uh, Washington Nationals shut him down. So in this situation, Harvey actually got a chance to go out there um, in front of the crowd and and be a hero in a playoff right. game. Um, how how do you balance that? You know, he'll never. You know, that's an experience he may. If he would have sure. been shut down, maybe sure. he never gets that experience again. Because because this is New York. Yeah. He because he's playing on this stage, and and clearly, look, he he's got some gumption, right? He's got something different about him that uh, that he can deal with all the pressure and the expectations, and still go out and handle business and win ball games, and. Even that in itself is a story, right? right. Like you got to be impressed with the way that he's handled all the pressure and all the stuff that's going on. It, it's a special player that has success and is able to handle the limelight, if you will, of New York and of playing on this stage. You know, one of my you know biggest regrets is that I wasn't able to come to New York and and play the way I wanted to on this stage. And a lot of that has to do with opportunity at the time. I just didn't get the playing time here. But, uh, you know, there are very few places that every player, you know, wants to say that he played. And New York is one of those places. So when I see uh, a player like Harvey or a player like A-Rod, Jeter, uh, David Wright, the way that they've handled uh, the glare uh, and playing on this stage in their whole career, like really you, you got to tip your cap and you could say whatever you want about numbers and all the stories and, you know, uh, the innings and, you know, PEDs, whatever it is, you know, they've handled themselves uh, so well on this stage and consistently on this stage. You got to tip your cap. Hmm. Well, listen, man, I want to tip my cap to you on behalf of uh, great Jamal Murphy, our sports attorney, Person, I'd like to tip my cap to you. Might have been a great guest, great conversation. Uh, thank uh, you for having me. It's it's always a pleasure coming back here. I can't wait to get back to Harlem. Uh, one last question for you guys. I'm in Harlem. I should go grab a, a bite yeah. to eat somewhere. Oh. Where should I go? Oh well, you should you should definitely go if you go right now. In fact, go to Sylvia's. That's sort of standard standard soul food, uh, which is good though. Sylvia's right over on the um, uh, it's Sylvia's 127th. And Lennox. Uh, but also, uh, you go to the Cecil. If you, Cecil. The Cecil. Okay. If you go to the Cecil, that's if you go in the more early evening. I'll go to the, I'm giving that. I want them to be a sponsor, man. I'm giving them. Right. And then, of course, you could also go to Chocolat. My friend uh, Leon, 
who owns Chocolat. 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 Okay. They're all around the same thing corridor. Uh, but if you're going to go right now, if you want to go get some soul food. Yeah. I, I, Sylvia's used to be, and I kind of blew off Sylvia's because it became like with all the German German tour buses there. Mm. But I went there with uh, <laughs> my friend Jamal, Jamal Payne and his dad, Les Payne, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. We went there for Jamal's birthday because Jamal, who's a young guy, he's like probably your age. He insisted that he wanted to go to Sylvia's. So I said, okay, man. Man, had one of the greatest meals, smothered chicken, yams, the greens. It was right. classic. Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Oxtail. Whole thing. Right. Whole thing. It was great. Uh, the Cecil, you know, different kind of audience. You know, a little, you wear a sport coat there and okay. all that. Yeah. The mac and cheese is the best mac and cheese in the world. I need to go check it out. Listen, I, I came, when I'm at home, I eat pretty clean. But, uh, okay. you know, when I go on a trip to go handle some business, you know, I got to enjoy the uh, the uh, culinary scene, as we say it. Yeah. I, I'm a sports guy, but I'm kind of a foodie and oh, love okay. art and real estate. And so uh, those Sylvia's, Sylvia's and the Cecil. And the Cecil. Okay. And if you go to the Cecil, uh, ask for uh, uh, Ale- uh, Alexander Smalls. Okay. He's Will do. A, the big time chef, you know. You know, tell them that. Tell them that Bill Roden sent you. Okay, I will. Man, hey, <laughs> name man, drop. Hey, name drop. But you know what? Tell him and tell him he also wants to. Tell him you were there because of me. Right. And then I want to talk to him about right. sponsoring okay. Bill okay. Roden on sports. Now we got it. Hey, Gary, man. Hey, thanks so much, gentlemen. Man. Yo, thank said, you so much, next, Jamal. Next time, bring Bill, your dad. I appreciate it. Will do. I'll get the Sarge in here. Yeah, bring. Well, man, that's that's gonna be a whole nother conversation. Oh man, he, he's he's a, a right. My dad's a riot. The Sarge, Sarge is a riot. Yeah, so next time we'll talk. We'll we'll, we'll negotiate this with Danielle. But uh, hey, thanks again, man. I'm this, looking this forward to it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.